A reading from Ruth chapters 3 and 4. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz a relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking, and when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young, man, young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out. She held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, 
the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons have given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'd like to begin tonight by orienting ourselves. We heard the first two chapters of the book of Ruth last week. We heard the last two chapters of the book tonight. And when it comes to the book of Ruth, there are two most important people, and their names are Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi was the mother-in-law, and Ruth was the daughter-in-law. Naomi used to live near the town of Bethlehem in the region of Judah, but there was a famine that came, and so he, she and her husband, Elimelech, had to sell their right to the land that they had there, and they went off to the land of Moab with their two sons. And while they were in Moab, both of her sons were married, so that added two daughters-in-law to this family. But in the course of time, all the men died. 
Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and uh, Malon and Chilion, Naomi's sons, died, and so that left three widows, Naomi and Orpah and Ruth. Now, as I mentioned last week, being a widow is never good in any situation, but this was especially dire in ancient times. Men provided for the family, they protected the family, and so Naomi and Orpah and Ruth were very poor and very vulnerable. Now what I focused on during last week's sermon was how Naomi and Ruth mother-in-law and daughter-in-law loved one another. Naomi urged her two daughters-in-law to go back to their homes to get married to new husbands and just leave Naomi to fend for herself. And this was sensible advice. If these women really wanted to have any realistic chance for happiness and prosperity, that was what they should do. But Ruth refused to leave her mother-in-law, whom she loved. She said, wherever you go, Naomi, that's where I'm going to go too. And where Naomi went was back home. The famine eventually subsided when Elimelech was still alive. Ruth and Naomi, they had, or, uh, uh, Elimelech and Naomi, they had farmed near Bethlehem. Bethlehem was home, so that was where Naomi went and Ruth followed her to Bethlehem. And when Naomi and Ruth arrived in that region, they needed some way to support themselves. Both of them were quite desperate, didn't have two nickels to rub together. Naomi was old and frail, and so it fell upon Ruth to work and provide for them both. And the job that she took was very lowly. It's the kind of work that beggars do. She was a gleaner in the fields, and being a gleaner means that you go through the field after it's harvested, and you pick up the leftovers. So if the harvesters left some standing grain by the side of the field, you could go over and pick that up, or if anything fell out of their bundles, then you could go and pick that up and keep it for yourselves. The gleaners didn't have a right to anything that they wanted. They could only take what was left over. The good thing though, and this surely is no coincidence, was that Ruth ended up being a gleaner in the right field. The owner of the field was this man that we heard about in our reading named Boaz. And Boaz, as it turns out, was an old relative of the family and in fact he was a redeemer, which I'll explain in a moment. It was good that Ruth ended up in Boaz's field because Boaz treated her kindly. He commanded his workers to allow Ruth to go right next to his, his harvesters. He even told them to purposely drop some of the stalks so that Ruth could have the spoils and the gleaning would be worth her time. And it was, in fact. When she went back home to show Naomi what she had gotten, Naomi was impressed. Now, I mentioned that Boaz was a redeemer. Our reading tonight was very much about that redemption process that Boaz underwent for Naomi and Ruth. So what is all this redeeming about? 
To understand it, you need to know that loans and the ownership of property, according to the law that God gave to the Israelites, is very different than how we understand these things today. God stipulated in his law how the Israelites needed to handle debt and property. Basically, nobody in Israel owned land, according to God's law. God owned it all. He was the owner, and he would lease the ability to live on the land and work it from, uh, from himself. And now if a time came when the people who lived on the land became poor, like it was with Naomi and Elimelech, they did have the ability to sell the right to work that land to others, and this appears to be what Naomi and Elimelech did before they left to go to Moab. But this was always only a temporary arrangement. You couldn't buy land from somebody else and keep it forever. The family who sold their right to work the land would get their original land back. And there were a couple ways that that could happen. One way was by what was called the Jubilee year. Every 50 years was a Jubilee year. And during that year, all debts would be canceled. And the selling of the rights to the land that I've been talking about, that was canceled too and the family would get back their land that they had sold long ago. The other way that a family could get their land back was by a redeemer. A thing talked about so much in our reading tonight, and this is what happened with Naomi and Ruth. Naomi and her late husband Elimelech had some land near Bethlehem years ago, but they'd sold that right to somebody else, but Naomi still was on the deed, so to speak. But the debt needed to be redeemed. And more prosperous relatives could redeem land so that their poorer relatives could be restored to the land. So in our reading tonight, we heard about how Boaz set about redeeming Naomi's land, which also would mean that these widows would come under his wing. Ruth would become his wife. Now, this was a big commitment. It would be expensive for Boaz. He'd also be taking on the responsibility of caring for these women. But this was something that Boaz was happy to do because, as you heard, he loved Ruth. The real driver behind our story tonight is actually not the peculiarities of the law, about how debt or ownership works. Well, the real driver behind our story tonight is a love story. Last week I talked about love too. The love that Naomi had for Ruth and Ruth had for Naomi. Tonight we heard about the marital love that Ruth had for Boaz and Boaz for Ruth. It was for the love of Ruth that Boaz redeemed Naomi and her. Boaz had to play his cards right in order to do that because a closer relative actually had the ability to redeem them and he had first rights. So as you heard, Boaz met with the council and there was that strange exchange of sandals. Long story short, 
Boaz did play his cards right, and they married, and in this way, God provided for Naomi and Ruth, lifting them out of all their poverty and danger. They were even blessed for generations after them. King David would be born from this line, and since King David was born from that line, that also means that our Savior, Jesus, is born from that line as well. Now, as we look to how we might apply what we've heard to our own time and place, I'd like to talk about something that pastors don't talk about very much, and that is the importance of marrying a good spouse. God's Word actually speaks about this in many places, and there are many, many examples, both good and bad. One of the most important factors for people's life of faith is the person that they marry, either for good or for ill. A godly, pious spouse is very powerful for helping the other retain his or her faith, but on the other hand, an impious spouse can be a powerful hindrance to living your Christian life. And this is not only the case for the spouses themselves, it also has its effect on coming generations as well. And this is easily seen when both husband and wife are pious, faithful churchgoers, they're going to raise their children the same way. Boys learn how to be husbands and fathers from watching their dads, and girls learn how to be wives and mothers by watching their moms. As the proverb puts it, train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. On the other hand, when moms and dads are not on the same page, when it comes to their faith and attending church, the coming generations are going to suffer for it. With the mixed signals that are given about how to live and what's right, or mom and dad, if they don't attend church, then it's practically guaranteed that the children won't either. And by the time the second or third generation is born, the children might not even be baptized and confirmed. So we should be wise and serious about marriage. And we can speak negatively and positively. Negatively speaking, Christians should not continue in relationships where their potential spouse is not Christian, does not want to become a Christian, or does not actively live a Christian life. Being a Christian is not just saying that you believe in God or in Christ. It also means that you repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear his word, want to do better. It also means that you're active in your congregation, helping your fellow congregation members to be Christians even as they help you. If the person you are dating is not an active Christian and does not want to become one, then that relationship should end. Positively speaking, Christians should, here's my advice, first of all, pray for God to give them a godly spouse. You parents and grandparents should pray for godly spouses for your children and grandchildren. 
There's nothing more beneficial that you could ask for them. And then, second of all, when an opportunity presents itself to marry a pious Christian, don't just sit on your hands. Get out there and make it happen. We see examples of this with Ruth and Boaz. When Naomi heard about Boaz, she immediately, I think her wheels started turning. Notice how she encouraged Ruth to go to Boaz and to make known to him her affection for him. Naomi was a matchmaker. Being a matchmaker is no sin. Making known your affection is no sin. It's risky, of course. Hearts can be broken. But even in a situation where things do not turn out the way that we would want, it is still better to try and fail than to never try at all. And if I may be so bold, I'd even like to speak personally about my own marriage. I was captivated by Jana from the moment I first laid eyes on her, but the feeling, however, was not mutual. When eventually, truly, years later, I made known to her my long-standing affection for her in an email, even then, she wasn't immediately on board. But, being wise, she talked to her father about it, and I'm very glad that she did. Because when she talked to her father, her father basically said to her, don't be too hasty. Give it a chance. And, long story short, less than a year later, we were married. I hope she hasn't been too disappointed. I know that I haven't been. But if you think about it, if it hadn't been for my father-in-law, who knows if we would have gotten married? So romantic relationships do not need to be only how they get depicted in movies or sung about in songs. Movies and songs can be a lot of fun, but that might not be how God would have it be for you and with your spouse. What is important is to recognize the things that were recognized by both Ruth and Boaz. Each recognized in the other that here we have someone who is loving and honorable, generous, pious, and so on. Now, that said, neither was probably perfect in every respect. Who is perfect in every respect? Ruth was practically a beggar. Boaz sounds like he was an older man. Maybe he didn't have the looks that he used to have. But God gave both of them the gift of love. God brought them together. The two became one flesh. And those blessings carried on for several generations. So my encouragement is that we be wise and serious when it comes to marriage for ourselves and for those whom we love. Being wise and serious does not come out of thin air. You don't get that way just by existing. If anything, what seems to come naturally is to get carried away by the feelings that are stirred up by movies or songs. And God 
is the key factor. He's the one from whom all good things come. You young people, you're never too young to pray for a godly spouse. And you older people, pray for godly spouses for your children and grandchildren. There's hardly anything more important you could ask for them to help them out, not just in this life, but even eternally. The peace of God that transcends all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.